Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. There's a few mini-reviews this week, so I just want to politely remind everybody that if I start talking about something that you really don't care about, just check the timestamps. Every single place this is posted, I have the timestamps in the description, and some places you got to fast-forward, others you could skip right to it, but either way, if you don't care about something, don't worry about it, just skip right ahead. I know that murders me in the algorithm, but I really care more about making sure that you all get the content you want, and a little less about giving YouTube what they demand from people. So, rant over, let's start out and see what we got this week. Last week, I had the opportunity to test a 20-inch 4x3 LCD panel that was designed to be a replacement for arcade monitors in a situation where you just can't get a CRT replacement. And I was really, really impressed. So even if you're normally not the type of person to care about something like this, I would stick around and give this a listen because a lot of things about this surprised me. So first of all... Uh, the first thing I did right off the bat was lag test it, because if this turned out to be laggy, I was just going to pack it right back up into the live stream, and that was it. However, it had under two milliseconds of latency in the top left corner, which is awesome. So I want to make sure I'm clear about this in case you're out jogging or out commuting or something. Not two frames, two milliseconds of latency. So that was awesome. Next thing to mention is the resolutions. First of all, it accepts... 15 kilohertz signals and differentiates between 240p and 480i. Almost every flat panel I've ever tested reads 240p as if it was any 480i 15 kilohertz signal and they, the panel tries to deinterlace it when it's not an interlaced signal. This does not do that. The resolutions are read properly. Also, it reads from 240p all the way up to its native resolution of 1600 by 1200. It did seem to accept higher resolutions like a lot of other panels I've tested over the years have, and I assume it just downscales it to the native resolution. So if you need to send it higher, it'll probably work, but try to stick to native or lower. And it did accept a 1080p signal, but because this is a 4x3 monitor, it's squished the image in the middle. So the good news is if you have a device like any of those classic consoles or uh, anything that has aspect ratio support, this is the time to set your console or source device to 16 by 9 because it'll fill the whole si the whole screen, but because you're sending it to a 4 by 3 panel, it'll actually look 
mostly fine centered inside it and fill the whole thing. Exactly like Greg's LCD CRT. Uh, I showed that in the video as well. The One of the other huge features that I was not expecting at all was if you go into the menu and you set the sharpness to its fullest uh, setting number four, it gets a sharp scale. Now, keep some realistic expectations here. This was about 250 bucks after shipping, so this is not going to be a replacement for the RetroTank 5X, but it actually gives a sharp scale. It doesn't just have that weird smooth image with edge enhancement applied. It seems to be sharp scaling it. But for whatever reason, if you wanted a smoother scale, you could turn it down and, uh, and have that. If I guess if you were sending it 480p signals, you might prefer that depending on the game or the console. But most importantly, this actually does a sharp scale. And I, I was very impressed. Also, when I fed it its native resolution of 1600 by 1200 via the mister, I was able to leave sharpness all the way up and it didn't add edge enhancement or too much craziness or anything like that. So it really is something that you could just leave the sharpness all the way up and then feed it whatever signal you would like. So right off the bat, this is pretty impressive. It did accept a direct RGBS signal. However, it had to be TTL level sync. So that just means you would have to put it through any device like the SCART cleaner uh, or any of those basically SCART to VGA converters. You just don't have to convert it to RGBHV. You would just have to go to RGBS, but at the higher voltage level sync, which is totally fine. It also didn't seem to make a difference. Now, I didn't spend a lot of time on this, but it didn't seem to make a big difference if I had the low pass filter on or off, which means that there must be something like that built in, which is also shockingly not something I see a lot on LCD panels, which is weird. It would seem like you would always want that on on your analog inputs, but I don't know, whatever. So... Now, the motion blur is about what you would expect from a decent quality LCD. Once again, context, $250 panel, not some you know $1,000 gaming monitor, not an OLED panel, but in the context of the price, very, very impressive. The mounting solution was just side tabs where I think you could rack mount it or you could just mount it inside your arcade machine. There's no bezel for it yet, but... If there's enough interest, I'm sure Greg from Laser Bear might make one or something like that. However, the panel is not going to be available much longer. I'll get to that at the end. It's not dire, but I'll get there. So overall, this thing was just really impressive. Um, during the stream, I bugged Wickerwaka, who reminded me that to switch your mister to 1600 by 1200 is just a very simple video mode. I'm so used to everything going wrong that I just didn't even think just try adding 1600 by 1200 at 60 hertz and that is all it took but it also did that with mister's low latency mode v-sync adjust equals two and it even did that with weird cores like r-types 55 hertz refresh rate wonder swans 75 hertz and game boy advances weird thing that it does so overall it, it just it performed ex better than i had ever imagined every single time I tried testing something. It really was something that I just, I did not expect this at all. And in fact, a few weeks ago, somebody asked me my thoughts on this monitor in the Q&A. And while I'm always completely transparent, you know, I, I said, I've never tested this one. I've tested others that claimed to do what this did and they were very disappointing, but I was wrong. Every single bit of speculation about this monitor, I was wrong because this is not the norm. This isn't some 
repackaged junk with a new label on it. I mean, obviously, they're not a company that's making their own panels and drivers, but there's clearly custom firmware on these driver boards. So I was just impressed the whole way. The only thing that I would call downsides are it's meant as an arcade replacement. So if you just wanted to buy one for your own use, then you would have to mount it yourself or come up with a bezel. Some of the menu options didn't really work right, but that's it's not... It's not an end game thing for me. It's just something that when you start hooking this thing up, you just have to understand like, okay, sometimes up is down and down is up. Sometimes this menu option doesn't work. It's not a, a something that would ruin the experience. It's just something that's like, all right, maybe they'll fix this in the next rev or something like that. And the only other issue that I ran into that other people said that they did not run into and I was just being impatient which is fair, was that after power cycling, it remembered the last input. So it remembered VGA, even though when I powered it on, I had an HDMI signal active and going to it. And I wasn't able to switch over. Now, people told me that if I had just waited a couple of more seconds, then pressed the menu button, I could have done that. But I didn't have the... It just... Every button wasn't working. I had to boot it with a VGA signal in, then switch. So I'm not really sure if you pick this up, if that's going to work. But once again, that's not... A feature that would kill the deal for me that's just something that you might want to note so the only the only downside about this is the manufacturer stopped making this panel so there are enough so if you wanted a couple you could probably pick one of these up now if there's another project out there that wanted low quantity i imagine you could talk to arcuda and pick up what they had so this is not something that that it's going to be available for the long term however Arcuda is looking into doing more things like this. No promises, nothing is set in stone, but they're trying to do a follow-up product with the same awesome features, the same low price point, because you've got to just put that into context. A $250 thing that does all of this. And yeah, hooking up a RetroTINK 5X or an OSSC and adding scan lines or a mister with the scan line filters, that's definitely going to be an overall more feature-filled experience, but... 250 bucks to get that sharp scaling built in. That's pretty cool. The only other thing that um, bothers me because of my weird OCD, but probably doesn't bother 99.9% of other people, is because it's 1600 by 1200, you don't get that awesome cutoff that you, the overscan that you would with a, a 1080p panel and 1080p 5x scaling. So if you were building that into an arcade machine, you could build a bezel that goes around it, or you could just ignore it and just like knowing that it's integer scaled. I think there is still a stretch option for people, but that's just. Um, that's going to be a result of the resolution, native resolution of the panel. It's not a problem. Arcuda didn't do anything wrong. It's just one of those things that I love the way, you know, 5X or 10X, if we would ever get 4K, 4x3 panels. I, I love how that matches, or sometimes is even less overscan than your average CRT was back in the day. That's just something to note. So, you know, overall, as long as you put this all into context, 250-ish bucks, I'm sure shipping, depending on wherever you live, is going to be more or less. For a sharp scaling, 240p compatible, 2 millisecond latency, 4x3 panel, I, I think that's amazing. Now, of course, the dream is to have a curved OLED panel with a um, 2560 height resolution, so you could do a 10x scale with... 120 hertz or, or 240 hertz and bfi built in and i mean that's the dream but that would also be like a 1500 dollars monitor minimum probably more than that because of the low quantities so you know 
context. Don't think of it as the, the perfect CRT replacement, but if you do need a CRT replacement that's about 20 inches, you, you're not able to find one or you're just tired of continuously rebuilding a chassis or you're building your own cab that you want narrower and lighter so you don't have to deal with it, this one's awesome. So I'm going to continue to talk to Arcuda. Uh, I'll keep updated on whatever new products they have out, but I just, I was so impressed because they're the first company I've seen do this right for retro. Um, the only other thing to note, which I probably should have noted this at the beginning, uh, um, they do sell an adapter that allows you to put JAMA into this, but it's a different voltage. So you can't just like solder a VGA cable to the pins on your JAMA connector and send the full voltage. You would have to have a converter, but they sell that and then it's the same thing. You could accept the 240p uh, input from your arcade boards and go right into this. So overall, just super impressed. Shout out to Cam for letting me borrow it. A lot of the stuff that I do on these live streams are not mine. Their friends send it to me or have things sent to my house. I would have never had the opportunity to test this if Cam didn't send it to me. So thank you so much. And thanks to everybody else who allows me to do that because I think this is just the perfect scenario for me. Have something drop shipped to my house. I'll do a live stream like this, do the full review, you know, or the mini review here and then kind of go from there. So Probably should have just made this a video in itself, but you know I like making things easier for you, so definitely check it out if you're interested. This week's podcast is once again sponsored by JLC PCB, and this week we're picking up right where we left off. Last week I loaded up a PCB plus assembly file, and as soon as we got to the part where we uploaded everything and got to the bomb list, it had an error. So let's take a look and pick up right from there. Whenever you run into issues like we saw last week, the best thing to do is to double check everything in your main PCB software and then just regenerate all the files. It could have been a blip, you could have had a typo somewhere. So that's exactly what we did. And then we just ran through the same process again. Upload your Gerber file, select PCB assembly option, put your bill of materials and your pick and place file, make up a silly name for the project, and then wait for it to load. As you can see here, we have another issue inventory shortage because of course we do because we're in a global part shortage but luckily jlc pcb makes that really easy all we're doing is searching for the same component and this is a really generic component just a basic capacitor so we found one with the same exact values and voltage and there are quite a few in stock so we're just going to select that and that is really cool that we're able to do that so easily that's one of the reasons why I like showing the bumps in the road for these videos, because it really kind of walks you through what to do when stuff like this happens, because we're still on the part shortage and this is going to keep happening. But now that it's loaded, we're just going to zoom in, make sure that it looks right. And remember that since this is a panel, it's all going to match what's on the first one. So you're not going to get one panel with one, you're going to get it with all. And that's basically it. We're all done. I'm going to go through secure checkout, just like I showed last week. And hopefully within a week or two, we'll be able to see exactly how this turned out. Here's another mini review that was years in the making. This is for the Avermedia Live Gamer Bolt, which is a 4K capture card that only runs on Thunderbolt, not USB at all. And it's compatible with both Intel Macs, not the new M1s, at least at the moment, and PCs, and I, I think maybe Linux too, but I didn't have the ability to test that. I only tested Mac and PC. And Avermedia actually sent me one of these 
before it was released, which happened to be right at lockdown. So the original plan was to go, uh, actually to go to Art's house and test it with him and all of his equipment, but everything just didn't feel like the right time to do all that. But that kind of worked out because when I eventually did get this and start testing, I realized there is a lot more going on. As soon as you hit 4K60, 444 uncompressed color RGB capture, things get really weird. The jump from even 1536p, that iPad resolution that uh, the LCD CRT accepts, the jump from that to 4K60, or even the jump from 4K30 to 4K60 takes a massive toll on your PC. So while this review seems pretty short and to the point, how I was able to come to the conclusions in here took I mean, almost a year total of on and off testing, trying to figure out why my broken Asus motherboard wasn't working right. Turns out it was the BIOS that it shipped with, and it wasn't until they offered another BIOS on their website that it suddenly start working. It's totally fine now. But I learned a lot. First and foremost, the Live Gamer Bolt is the best external capture card I've ever used. It pretty much works exactly like the Live Gamer 4K internal version, the only one difference is I found that on all of the PCs that I tried and Macs and Macs running Windows or uh, Mac OS, it couldn't handle full 4K60 over Thunderbolt. So I thought, okay, maybe it's a problem with the Bolt. So I took the Live Gamer 4K, the PCI Express version. I got 4K60 uncompressed color capture working, tested with the 240p test suite so you have the timer so you could see every single frame counting. Worked perfect on my PC, but then I put it in a Thunderbolt enclosure and it maxed out at 4K53. So it looks like Avermedia capped it to 4K50. So and that also seems to be a limitation of the Thunderbolt interface, which I was always told is the exact same as a PCI Express slot. There is no difference, but I've proven that probably 20 times already now just in this testing. And obviously Avermedia did as well because there's no other reason for them to cap the bolt at 4K50 at uncompressed color resolution. If you're using any kind of color compression, including 422, then fine, you get 4K60, no problem whatsoever. So that was really important to note here, because I know there's a lot of my fellow nerds watching right now that I really think needed to hear that information. Not even just in the context of the Live Gamer Bolt, but any Thunderbolt device, you're going to hit a limit. The other thing too, if you want you know, full uncompressed 4K60, you're going to need the latest technology SSDs. The PCI Express 4.0 ones that run at over 7,000 megabytes a second, you're going to need the fastest. Anything lower than that's not going to cut it. Or I guess if you run a bunch of them in RAID on the, the other ones, that should probably be it. But it just barely is fast enough for that. So this is kind of an interesting thing. Uh, other than that, it, it just works exactly like the Live Gamer 4K. It works with the OSSC, with the SNES and 1080p 5X mode. However, just like the internal version, it gets audio dropouts, but it has an audio input on it. So you could just go direct from the SNES analog audio into there and just skip the scaler. Obviously, if you're using a RetroTINK 5X in triple buffer mode, that's not an issue, but if you want to use frame lock mode, that's probably going to be something that you'd want to do. Not a problem at all. 
IMD Fourier tested the analog input and it's got kind of a higher noise floor. So for gaming, recording your, your streams, totally fine. And you could probably use it for MD Fourier, but you, you know, if you ever get into serious audio archiving and analysis, this isn't for you, but for casual to pro use, yeah, you, the analog input should be fine. Um, I didn't really test the pass through, but everybody else that's tested these said it worked fine and it should work the same as the internal version. So that's always a good, uh, a good feature. It means you don't really need to use a splitter. So overall, I just, I loved this capture card. I thought it was very cool. And the one other advantage is yes, it's a hundred dollars more expensive, at least depending on where and when you buy it than the internal version. But if you wanted to use the internal version in a Thunderbolt enclosure, those go for at least 300 bucks. So it's actually, if, if you really, if you don't need 4K60 444 capture, and you think you might be transferring it between a couple of Thunderbolt machines, this is the way to go. Or if you were just looking for a really awesome external capture card and you had a Thunderbolt port on an Intel-based machine, this is for you. So... There was a lot of rambling in there and there was a lot of information that was more more aimed towards Thunderbolt and capture in general but um you know I think I think my fellow nerds would appreciate that learning all of that cuz that took us months and months and I dragged everybody into this Rollman, Artemio, Epos Fox, a contacted AMD I I dragged everybody into figuring out why 4K60 uncompressed wasn't working and it came really did come down to Asus released a motherboard with a broken BIOS and no other BIOS alternatives, and that you need the fastest, newer PCI Express cards possible. Also, shout out to Datapath, because they helped when I was testing the 4K Datapath card, um, and I don't think I would have been able to be... I don't think I would have gotten to the conclusion of this without them as well. Their cards are also, you know, over $2,000, so with all of the love and respect to Datapath, the live gamer stuff is probably more for the people listening to this. But if you're a crazy person like me and Art, maybe you'd want to look into the Datapath stuff as well. So thank you to everybody that helped on this one. And hopefully this information's helped to anybody else trying to go down that road. The post has links to used versions, new versions, and the internal version and the other um, the review I did as well. So if you need any other details, check that out. I know this was more about Thunderbolt in general, but hopefully this was a help. Nick from Pandemonium Reviews just posted another awesome documentary, but there's a few things you have to know before going in, because this one might be a turnoff to a few people for a few reasons, but I'm going to explain to you, spoiler free, why it shouldn't be. First and foremost, it's about the game Quarterback Attack with Mike Ditka. However, you do not need to like football or sports at all to enjoy the documentary. On the flip side, if you're a huge football fan like I am, Nick makes a bunch of funny jokes at the beginning, but then also has very balanced content. So if you're like me and, you know, you just you hear people just making sports jokes because they're not familiar with the sport, it gets annoying. But Nick does a really good job being funny, balancing things out and kind of making it fun for people who are both sports fans or not sports fans to understand. So awesome job on that one, Nick. Also, it's an over an hour long, but this is worth your time. If you see this, you're going to be like, you know, an hour is a long time to spend on something like this. But if you've seen any of the other Pandemonium reviews, you know that it's a review documentary doc docu review. I forgot what Nick called it, but it, it's a really great 
real documentary. It's worth your time. It's not just a bunch of people rambling for an hour like my live streams are. It's a real documentary. And the only other thing, too, is while, yes, it's an FMV and those have aged terribly, it is an interesting game because, once again, spoiler free, it it's something that if you put in the context of when it was released, no one had ever tried anything like that before. And it is not at all the worst sports game I've ever played on a video game console. Not, not even close. It's not good, but if you want to give it a try, just give it a try with an open mind and try to put yourself in the mindset of what it would have been like back in 95 or something like that when this came out or you're, you know, oh, wow, you know, I'm seeing it from the perspective of a quarterback and there's real people in this. And so, you know, it's, I played it on the 3DO live stream I did the other day, which I took down because apparently I got copyrighted for playing four seconds of Soundgarden music when Road Rash loaded up. I would have loved to have linked that here for anybody that wanted to, to see more footage. But honestly, I thought this was really cool. I loved the documentary, and I absolutely think it's worth everybody's time. So that's why I rambled for almost three minutes about it rather than just saying, here's the documentary. I really want people to watch this because I thought it was very, very cool. The only other thing I'll add is one of the main characters that's in this is Laurent Kano from Thunder in Paradise. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. If you do, that alone should be enough to, to get you to turn on this documentary. So uh, cool interview in it. That was very unexpected. Great info behind the scenes. I mean, Nick always nails it. So if you're remotely interested in this stuff, give it a chance. And if you're a football fan, stick with it. He, uh, he stops shitting on you after a couple of minutes. Now it's time for this week's Mr. News, Care of Lou from Lou's Retro Source. As usual, I'm going to skim through these, and if you want any of the details, please check out Lou's video or post here. First up, Robert posted a whole bunch more info on the PlayStation Core and added some filtering and, and some more updates to that. And as I've talked about pretty much every week, I love those posts. I love the in-depth information that he presents and definitely check out the links that Lou posted because you got to see all of the updates for yourself and the filtering. And, and I think it's going to be a, a pretty big deal for people that are fans of that, of those games, especially the early 3d graphics games that sometimes don't age so well on flat panels. This might've really improved it. Also SRG 320 has posted some updates on the Saturn core. He's posted a video showing a couple of different games working and there's progress on the CD drive, VDP1, VDP2, and SCSP. So awesome that uh, the Saturn core is getting some progress. Anton Gale has just gotten the Exerian core to a state where uh, the game is recognizable. The colors are off, but it's making some good progress. Uh, Hotego posted a poll on Twitter about what should they do the schematics about next, the PGM or the CPS3. And while I jokingly made a comment of something like, you know, that doesn't look like Mortal Kombat to me, the the honest answer is that so many people in the community have been asking for a CPS3 core for a long time because of the cost and complexity of getting that stuff working these days. So if you're a fan of original hardware, you're always going to own that, even if you're playing the core on the Mister. But I do think that one's important. And Hotego also asked, does anybody have broken CPS3 boards that they'd be willing to give to him to be destroyed. I said destroyed first because I want to make sure to set expectations. You're not getting this back. However, the reason is they want to try taking it apart, possibly maybe even decapping it and stuff like that to really get at the chips on there. So, uh, you know, I, I know Hotego has some working CPS3 stuff, but any broken ones out there, please step up, 
you know, consider shipping them out there or contact me and I could tr try to get the shipping taken care of for you. But we want to get those in his hands and we want to get, you know, and this is also something that I love because you're taking a broken thing that probably was eventually destined for the trash bin. And even though it's getting torn apart and technically destroyed, you're also allowing that to breathe new life into the platform via schematics and FPGA. So if you got one, please, please contact somebody. Uh, also, ultimatemister.com just released a spinner controller design for the Mister that could also work on most USB stuff. And it looks pretty cool, pretty high quality. I'd love to try one myself for certain games. I'd also love to see a Tempest core on the Mister, if anybody's willing to do that, you know, as if it's an easy thing, right? Oh, yeah, just whip up a core. Sorry. Um, there's also a core in development for the Atari System 1 arcade board uh, that includes games like Peter Packrat, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Marble Madness, and a couple others. So that's pretty exciting. Um, there's also some progress on uh, Clean Sweep and some other stuff that people have been working on. And there's also some progress on analog pocket cores. I think the Genesis core is a little bit more accurate. And there's a few other things that Lou called out in the video. So if you're into that, please check out his video. And as always, thanks to Lou for compiling all of this information in one place. Because without him, I definitely wouldn't have been able to keep up. And I think most of us wouldn't have as well. So thanks to Lou. Thanks to everybody on the Mr. Team. And please... Please, please, if you have a broken CPS3, um, contact me or anybody else and help get it to Hotego's team to start working on. The game Decathlete is now running on Darksoft's STV Multi. If you're not aware of what that is, let me give you a little bit of background. If you already own one of these, just check out Ronnie's post. You could probably skip the rest. But the Sega STV was an arcade platform that was basically the arcade version of the Sega Saturn. And Darksoft created a multi-cart that was able to play almost all of the games on that platform. The two that were left over, one of them was Decathlete, which at, up until now wasn't able to be played because of the encryption on there, but developer Metallic was able to figure that out, and now you're able to load that game and play it, which is pretty cool. The only other game that's not able to be played on it is, I believe, Batman because of the extra audio chip that is in that. So Batman Forever will boot, it just will run without audio, and I don't think that that's ever really going to be fixed on a multi. I think if you wanted to play that game, you would have to find the original or use emulation or something like that. But overall, that's pretty awesome. That means if you have an original Sega STV board and you want to pick up Darksoft's cart, you'll be able to play pretty much every game on there. So uh, thanks to Darksoft for making these. Of course, thanks to Metallic for stepping up and defeating that last bit of, of encryption on there. And thanks to Ronnie for writing this up and making it easy for anybody to reference if you want to pick one up yourself. This Saturday, orders will open up for a vinyl version of the arcade soundtrack for Fantasy Zone up at datadiscs.com. And I've recently gotten into soundtracks on vinyl. I've listened to quite a few. I own three of the Data Discs ones, uh, Afterburner, Outrun, and Space Harrier. And I've had the opportunity to listen to quite a few others via friends letting me borrow theirs or stuff coming through here. And I got to say that the Data Discs releases have been top notch every time. There's been a lot of other good ones. There's been a few other not so good ones, but mostly... Uh, I would just recommend that if you like the soundtrack and you want it on vinyl and data discs is making it, that's definitely a go-to. Um, so if you're interested in this, check out Crystal's post. There's all of the details. There's three different versions. Uh, there's a limited edition and then a pink and a black version. And there's also different 
times that it'll go live for different people. So I would just check out Crystal's post for all the details. But basically, if you're into soundtracks on vinyl and you like the Fantasy Zone soundtrack, I would call this a must-buy because I've just been nothing but impressed with all of the data disc stuff. So uh, thanks to Crystal for writing up. And if you're a fan of this, definitely pick it up this Saturday. Usually the special editions sell out right away and the other ones stay in stock for a little bit. But I would still jump in there as soon as you can just to make sure that you get one if you want it. I saved this one for last in case I start rambling, but I'm going to spit out the facts first, then let everybody know when you could drop off. Analog has announced a couple of things some of which are time-sensitive, and one of which is pretty cool. Uh, Just the cool fact is that 95% of all pocket pre-orders will ship before the end of the year, which is awesome. That's props to them for pulling that off in the middle of a part shortage. Also, on October 21st, the cartridge adapters for the pocket will be available for $100 for pre-order. And here's the big one. On October 28th, they're making one last run of Super Nintendo and Genesis FPGA consoles, still about the same original price of 200 bucks, and supposedly they're not going to be making these again. So that's really it. Those are the facts. Um, I do have a, a lot of good things to say and, and some you know WTF moments after that. So if you don't care, just drop right off now. Nothing important after this. But there are a few things that I genuinely feel are important enough to talk about. First of all, everybody still thinks I hate analog. I do not at all. I hate some of the stuff that they do, but they're they are keeping the price about the same for a product that's in the middle of a global part shortage and inflation. They could have very easily tacked on another hundred bucks. And while people would have complained, people would have paid it, but they didn't. They kept it about the same price. So, you know, no reasonable person, even if you can't stand some of the stuff the company does, no reasonable person would be able to not give them props for that. I mean, that that is very cool. Thank you to Analog for doing that. That was unexpected and, uh, and and pretty awesome. Also, the fact that through the part shortage, they still made it uh, made it good on their promise for the pocket shipments and all that stuff. I think that's very very cool. There are some uh, there are some things that I just don't get. First of all, what happened to the duo? That's turning into their virtual boy. They're they're pretending like they never made that announcement. I get part shortage, all that other stuff, but not even a follow up on it. Not even a hey, it's delayed indefinitely. But the duo was something I was really excited about because I have one complaint about the Super NT and the Mega SG is that they don't look anything like the original consoles. I mean, maybe the, the Mega SG has that little swirl like a Genesis does, but part of, part of nostalgia, for me at least, and for I think a lot of people, is the look. Because for me and for most people, the moment you start playing the game, nostalgia goes out the window. Five minutes after you've powered that console on, if the game sucks, the game sucks. And if the game's good, you don't really care how you're playing it. You're sucked into a good game. But the look and feel are definitely a huge part of nostalgia. And I loved that the duo kind of resembled the PC Engine duo, Turbo duo. But I also loved the price because it was about the same price-ish, I think, but you compare that to original hardware, and that's where things get get really different. So, yes, the Super NT and Mega SG, I think they're fairly priced. You plug your cartridge in, you know, you set it to boot to cartridge, and you basically have a plug-and-play experience. And just a side note, some people can't understand why you would ever want to use a cartridge. Some people think that cartridges are the only way to get the true, you know, original experience. And a couple of people make jokes about both, but... 
they don't realize people don't realize they're joking they're all right and they're all wrong it doesn't really matter do you but if you do like using your original cartridges these things are awesome just plug them in they're cheaper than buying original hardware getting it recapped if it needs it doing an rgb mod if it's a a messy thing or if it doesn't output rgb and you know if you're going to a flat panel that does make a big difference if you're just going to crt composites still awesome but they're cheaper than doing all that but the duo was far cheaper if you consider everything that it would have taken to get those consoles working on a flat panel and that resembled the original it was basically potentially could have been one of my favorite analog consoles and just not mentioned i don't really get that at all and the other thing is are they really discontinuing it if this is one of those things where they're just trying to create some fomo just like every band's final tour that they've done seven times in 20 years and you know if that's it if they're just trying to create some hype and then there's gonna they're gonna find some stock next year but miraculously have thousands fine whatever they're not jacking the price up they're not stealing from people they're just trying to create some some buzz so that they're able to sell however many they plan on making i I don't like that i don't hate that but i hope there's another plan in place and i did speculate in this post if anybody cares about my thoughts read them there Uh, the only thing that i politely would recommend is read the little little aside note at the bottom that basically says yes i'm a uh, idiot with a blog and a YouTube channel, but all of my comments involving manufacturing and supply chain and all that come from experience that I've had since 2006-ish, working with medical companies that making you know medical grade computers in the tens of thousands, all the way to retro gaming stuff made in the tens. <laughs> so my speculation on that, while might be wrong or might be an asshole thing to say, is it's definitely accurate in you know in my I know where my facts are coming from, but. If they're not actually making any of these, that leaves the only people's choices, those crappy multi-consoles with the HDMI outs and the bad scalers in them. And while some are worse than others, none of them are even close to on the same level as these products. And they're not that much cheaper, all things considered. You know, if you were only wanting, like the, the Hyperkin Super Nintendo one was what, 80 bucks? It sucks at least the one I reviewed a couple of years ago. So let's just hope that there's more to this and that Analog is actually planning on doing some kind of follow-up product on this or that they're just pulling the typical bullshit marketing stuff where they're trying to make everybody think that there's not that they're not available anymore. Either way, it was just very weird to see that, see them announce that you know this is the final run. Why, why would you ever do that? You have employees to pay. You have supply chain that you could continue to deal with even if you don't want to sell them yourself sell them through distribution i just made no sense to me the only thing that made sense is if it's not the final run but you know i wouldn't bet on on any of that if you wanted one of these now's the time to pick them up um i guess that's basically it so any thoughts on this post in the comments the only thoughts that i i don't care about and might get you banned is screw you you can't talk about analog they're evil or how dare you question the second coming of steve jobs chris Tabor? his turtleneck's even taller than screw all you people i, I can't i can't understand this weird tribalism with this stuff it's they're good products weird marketing and, and business decisions but whatever I, i'm still a nerd that loves things for what they are and i just call things as i see them and you know i'm a human so my opinions now reflect my thoughts now. The more I learn, the more my opinions change. And, and who knows? Maybe I got this one wrong, but just this one felt off to me. Feels like there's going to be another run or, or something else is happening. Well, that's it for this week. 
As I said at the beginning, there's a bunch of mini reviews, but there's also timestamps. So if any of this stuff annoys you, just skip around. Uh, you know, I don't have time to do a full high production review of like the Bolt and the Arcuda, although the, the live stream is out there if you want more details on that one. But at the same time, I don't want to just flip on the camera, talk to the camera and then release that as a separate video. Although, according to YouTube, that's what I should definitely be doing. I just feel like having all this stuff in one makes it easier for people. You get kept in the loop. You can just listen to it through your headphones. If you're doing something else, you don't need to watch it. So as always, let me know if you don't like that or if there is a valid reason other than an algorithm that I shouldn't be doing it this way. Uh, but if not, I, I do kind of like this format. I think it's neat to have everything all in one and, and make things easier for everybody. But anyway, more importantly than anything else, thank you all for watching, listening, playing nicely in the comments, and especially people who support in any way possible, because without you, none of this stuff would happen. So monthly support services like Patreon and Floatplane are really what keep this going, but helping any other way, affiliate links, going to the support page, even if you're buying stuff that you would have bought anyway that's not retro-related, just click on those links, you pay the same price, and we get a few pennies on it. So thank you all so much for keeping this going, and I'll see you next week.